Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that the Lamb has triumphed, that we are saved, that we are gathered into your people, and that we are gathered in this place at this time to hear from your word, to feast on your sacraments. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would be moving amongst us, meeting us in the place where we need to be met, where we need to hear from you, where we need to be reassured. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Have you ever placed your hope in something that in the end left you disappointed? Or worse, that left you full of shame? feeling like a fool for having built your hope in the wrong place. The scriptures are full of cautionary tales about people who hoped in the wrong things. Pharaoh in his sovereign right to rule the Israelites. Nebuchadnezzar in the glory of his kingdom Babylon. The prodigal son in his early inheritance. The rich fool in Jesus' parable that stored up all the crops in his big barns. The Galatian Christians in their keeping of the law. As human beings, we cannot help but place our hope in something or somebody. We are hardwired for hope. Everyone is placing it in something or someone. The question is where and what? What are you placing your hope in right now? Just think about it for yourself in your own life. It could be just little things, like how this summer you hope maybe you'll have a vacation, maybe you will get rest. Or maybe you're hoping for something in your job, a big deal that would close, a promotion, a raise, a different boss. Or maybe you have a young child who's not sleeping and you hope that maybe just maybe one day they would start sleeping even just six hours, maybe seven hours during the night. So we have those kind of hopes, more in the immediate. But we also have larger hopes that, that project out a little further. Maybe we, we hope to have a family one day, to be married, maybe to have children. Maybe we do have a family and we'd like to see our, our family, our children grow and develop in certain ways. Maybe we hope for good health. We're in the middle of something that's threatening our health and we hope to come out of it or we just hope that we continue in good health into old age. Maybe we hope that we can retire at some point and enjoy a slower pace of life. Maybe we're hoping that a difficult relationship that is broken in some way would be reconciled and find peace again. So where are you placing your hope right now? Little things, big things. And then ask yourself this question, how secure is that hope? Or to put it a different way, if the thing for which you hope didn't happen, how crushed would you be? Would you be devastated or disappointed? Would you feel foolish or put to shame? The more fervently we hope for something, the more desperately we count on it to come to pass, the more at risk we are If it does not come to pass, then it proves empty. Part of us might say, well, if that's the nature of hope, then let's just not hope in anything and we will never be disappointed. And so perhaps we follow the road of the cynic. It's really impossible not to hope. 
Even the cynic is placing hope in his cynicism as some mechanism to deal with disappointment in life. We are hardwired to hope in something. And when we lose all hope, it is very difficult to even go on living. And so the question that this brings us to is this. Is there something or someone in which or in whom we could place our hope that will not put us to shame? that will never leave us in despair. And the Bible, of course, gives an answer to this question. A very consistent answer throughout the Old Testament and the New. Place your hope in God, and you will not be put to despair. You will not be put to shame. The last couple of Sundays, we've been in Romans chapter 5. And we've been considering this wonderful teaching called justification by faith. The basic teaching of the first five or so chapters of Romans is this. Human beings are in bad shape. We are not right with God and there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with him. And so God did it himself. Through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, God made a way for human beings to be made right with him. That's justification. Being made right with God. And we don't have to work for it. No matter how good we are at being good, we are not good enough. In order to receive justification and all of its blessings, we simply trust God. We put our faith in His promises of what He has done, and we are declared righteous. And then having been declared righteous, we enjoy these incredible blessings. And that's what we saw last week. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We obtain this this access and this standing into grace, into favor with God, and we have a whole new reason to rejoice, new joy, peace, grace, joy. Those are some of the blessings of justification. Together with these blessings, this teaching of justification forms a good foundation for our hope. And we see this is where Paul goes in Romans 5. After telling us a little bit about justification, he says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Earlier in Romans, he's told us about the wrath of God. That was the destiny of all human beings. But now he tells us that we get to hope in the glory of God. Our greatest hope in this life and in the life to come is that we will see and we will enjoy, and we will feast upon and participate in the glory of God, the love of God, the beauty of God, the kindness of God. And so in five chapters of Romans, Paul has brought us from wrath to glory through this amazing teaching of justification by faith. That is a foundation of our hope. But the question is, how secure is it? Right? Because that's the key issue with hope. We want a secure foundation for hope. And justification by faith is a pretty strange source on which to build hope. First of all, faith by definition means we can't see it all right now. And so we're placing our hope in something we can't see. Second, justification is counterintuitive. We're accustomed to to placing our hope in our own accomplishment, that which we can see, and that which maybe we've worked with our own hands. We're not used to to just trusting in the promise of an unseen God that everything is going to be okay. So what if justification is not as secure as we thought? What if God changes his mind about us? 
What if we sin too much after faith and we end up losing it all? We miss out on the glory of God. What if all of it is just a hoax to begin with? Just some religious nonsense that doesn't really matter? These are legitimate, honest questions, are they not? Questions that I think Christians should actually ask ourselves. Because we all have assumptions. We all have foundations on which we build hope. The atheist does as well. Christian, atheist, anybody should examine those foundations and say, is that really a secure one on which to build my hope, on which to build my life? And so how secure is justification? I find it interesting the Apostle Paul seems to anticipate this question about the security of hope, maybe because he asked it himself, maybe because he had wrestled with it for long years, coming out of one framework into another as the Holy Spirit taught him, or maybe others had asked along the way. We have to remember that Paul was not just a theologian and a writer, but he was a pastor. And he knew the needs and the questions and the struggles of his people. And perhaps people had said that to him. Well, how do we know that hope won't put us to shame? He seems to anticipate the question because listen to what he writes in verse 5. After talking about justification and the hope that it can produce, he says this, And hope does not put us to shame. Or hope does not disappoint us. And then for the next six verses, he'll tell us why. And in doing so, he actually goes deeper than justification by faith. Imagine it like this. If justification by faith is a foundation, maybe the concrete slab on which our hope is built, Paul is going to go underneath that foundation to the solid bedrock on which it rests. Because there's something more fundamental than justification, and it is the motivation behind it. Divine motivation that gave birth to the possibility of us being justified in the first place. Do you know what it is? Love. It is the love of God. That's why he justifies us, friends. That's his motivation. That's how we know it's going to be okay. That's how we know we're not going to be put to shame because God loves us. Yes, it really is that simple. Our hope is secured by his love. And in verses 5 through 11, Paul is going to explain that love in two ways. First, he's going to explain the subjective experience of God's love through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And then second, he's going to show the objective demonstration of God's love through the death of Jesus on the cross. So first, subjective Holy Spirit. Second, objective Jesus on the cross. Let's take a look at both. First, the subjective, verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, in Romans, to this point, chapter 5, Paul's not said very much about the Holy Spirit. He says a little bit here, and then he'll come back to the Spirit a lot in chapter 8 and expand on that ministry. But what he says here, though brief, is powerful. First of all, he tells us that the Holy Spirit has been given to us. Don't overlook that. That is a major moment in salvation history. The Spirit has been given to the people of God and to us as individual believers. 
The simple fact that we have received the Spirit in and of itself is a guarantee of our hope. Paul will work this out in other letters like Ephesians, where he calls the Spirit the guarantee of our inheritance. So the Holy Spirit is given, but here's the question we have to think about a little bit. Is it given to all Christians? It's an important question because Christians don't always uh, say the same thing when it comes to the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, in the context of Romans 5, if we follow the logic of justification, I think Paul's answer would be anyone who's been justified has the Holy Spirit. Anyone who's placed their faith in the promises of God and the work of Jesus on the cross, received that, has the Holy Spirit. That's a basic definition of being a Christian. So I think the answer that Paul would give us is, yes, every Christian has the Holy Spirit. There is no such thing as a non-spirit-filled Christian. He's been poured out on the church. He's been poured into the life of every believer. Now, it is true that Christians relate to the Holy Spirit differently. We think about Him differently. We have different experiences of Him. And it's true that certain traditions within the Christian faith will hold up and highlight one aspect of His ministry or another. So, for example, some traditions hold up the extraordinary gifts, the sign gifts, the miraculous gifts, while other traditions hold up the the, the way the Holy Spirit teaches truth, especially through the inspiration of the Scriptures and how that's come down to us. So there's different parts of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but I think it's clear from the Scriptures that all Christians justified by faith have the Holy Spirit. That seems to be Paul's understanding in Romans 5. So simply having the Spirit in and of itself guarantees our hope. But Paul's focus, again, it's on love. God's love is the bedrock. And so he tells us this wonderful part of the Spirit's ministry. It is to pour the love of God into our hearts. That's why I call this the subjective experience of God's love. It's because of the word pour and because of the word heart. The Holy Spirit takes the love of God and He brings it into the life of a believer, not as an idea, not as a theory, but as an experience. And numerous Christians down through the ages have described powerful, subjective, personal experiences of God's love. We could go around the room today and share stories about it. But through history, we see people like St. Augustine, Martin Luther, and John Wesley, In the 1800s, in our own country, there was another man named Charles Finney who had such an experience. He was a Presbyterian minister. He was part of the second great awakening in our country, saw incredible revival. He was involved in the abolition movement and the Underground Railroad trying to get rid of slavery. Finney had this powerful experience of the love of God, and thankfully for us, he was a journaler, and he wrote it down. And I want to share with you a portion of what he wrote in his journal. He describes it like this. The Holy Spirit descended upon me in as manner that seemed to go right through me, body and soul. I could feel the impression like a wave of electricity going through and through me. Indeed, it seemed to come in waves and waves of liquid love, for I could not express it in any other way. It seemed like the very breath of God. I can recollect distinctly that it seemed to fan me like immense wings. No words can express the wonderful love that was shed abroad in my heart. I wept aloud with joy and love. 
What a beautiful description of the love of God being poured into someone's heart. I particularly love that phrase because it brings the idea of pouring, of the, the waves upon waves of liquid love. And Finney rightly accredits that to the Holy Spirit. He, he understands that's part of the Spirit's ministry. So how does this subjective personal experience, how would that secure our hope? Because through the Spirit, we have experienced the love of God personally. We know it's real. We felt it in our body, in our emotions, in our soul. God's love for us, our love for Him in response. His is primary, ours is secondary, but they're both there together through the Spirit. That's part of the assurance that He gives to us. And it's a wonderful gift. But I want to say that not every Christian has had an experience like Charles Finney. Sometimes God uses a waterfall to pour his love into our hearts. But sometimes, and probably more often, he uses a pitcher. If you've had those overwhelming waterfall experiences, cherish that. It's wonderful. I've had a few in my life. They're precious to me. But I've learned over the years that I can't rely on those alone. And I certainly cannot manufacture them. I need more regular encounters with the love of God. I think the normative experience for most Christians is the pitcher, not the waterfall. These are the daily, the weekly ways that the Spirit pours God's love into our hearts. And sometimes they're quite ordinary. They're things that we're already doing. Prayer and Bible reading. Why do we do that? Because it's a pitcher that the Holy Spirit uses to pour God's love into our heart. Weekly worship, singing, liturgy, confession, absolution, all pictures. One of our favorite pictures around here is this table, the sacrament of Holy Communion. God takes it, the Spirit takes it week after week, and He pours it into our church, and He pours it into our hearts. So I think it's okay to pray for the waterfall experiences, to cherish them when they come, but don't rely on them alone. The Spirit wants to more regularly fill us up daily, weekly, and He'll use often a pitcher, not a waterfall. So that's where Paul starts. How do we know our hope isn't going to put us to shame? Because we've experienced it personally. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Spirit who has been given to us. But Paul has a second explanation of God's love. And he moves from the subjective experience to the objective demonstration. Look at verse 6 and following. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul is telling us about something that happened in history, a verifiable event. Jesus died on a cross. And for Paul, this is the supreme demonstration of God's love. It actually goes deeper than the subjective experience, and it grounds the love of God for us in an event. And that's important because we are fickle creatures, and sometimes we sense God's love, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we can't even feel the picture of God's love. But the demonstration of God's love in the cross is always there. It happened for us once and for all. It cannot be undone. It is part of history. Well, why was the cross such a powerful demonstration of God's love? I mean, we hear it all the time. But think about it for a moment. 
And I like John Stott's explanation of it. He points out that we can define love in terms of giving, giving a gift, giving something. And so you can measure giving in two ways. First, by the costliness of the gift given. How much is it worth? And second, by the worthiness of the recipient. So if what is given is not very costly, and the recipient is very worthy, then it's a smaller act of love. But on the contrary, if a gift is extremely valuable and the recipients are not at all worthy, then that is a supreme act of love. So what is the gift of God's love? It's the life of Jesus, sacrificed on a cross, the highest possible value. And because Jesus is God, God's not giving someone else's life. He's giving his own life. It's an expression of his own love. There is nothing more costly, more wonderful, more beautiful than the life of the Son. And that is what is given. And then what about the recipients? Are we worthy of that gift? Absolutely not. Sometimes we like to think we are. But Paul is going to remind us emphatically that we are not worthy. He tells us in four ways, four different expressions. First, he says we're weak, meaning we're helpless. Second, he says we are ungodly. Third, we are sinners. And finally, he says we are enemies. We are in a relationship of hostility with God. We're not worthy of any gift, certainly not the highest possible prize, the life of Christ. In verse 7, Paul points out how unusual it is for someone to die even for a good person. It happens, but it's uncommon. We can think of examples like a soldier jumping on a grenade to save his brother in arms. That's a noble act of sacrifice. It's not very common, but it does happen from time to time. But imagine for a moment that an enemy pulled out a grenade intending to throw it, but dropped it at his own feet. And then the soldier from the other side of the battlefield saw that happen, ran across, and jumped on the grenade to save the life of the enemy who was trying to kill him. That would never happen. There is no soldier that would ever do that. And yet that is what Christ has done for us. While we were still enemies, still in rebellion, on the other side of the battlefield, Christ died for us, even though we wanted to kill him, even though we did kill him. He laid down his life to save ours. It is the supreme demonstration of love. So how does it secure hope? Well, Paul will explain that in verses 9 and 10. He basically says, listen, if Jesus laid down his life for you while you were still sinners, which he did, how much more will you be saved from the wrath of God at the final judgment? If through the cross, God made his enemies his closest friends, that's what means reconciled, how much more is he going to save you in the end? In other words, God has done the hard part already. He's done the unthinkable part already, sending his son to die for enemies, for sinners, for terrorists. He's not going to turn around and kick us out at the end. He's already moved you from wrath to glory. The cross did that, not your accomplishments. You are safe in glory. He's not moving you back to wrath. Your hope is secure because of what God's love has done and what is accomplished on the cross. 
So friends, where is your hope in this world? Even as Christians, we often will place our hope in the wrong things, and we will experience disappointment and sometimes despair. But if you don't want to be in despair, if you don't want to be put to shame, then ground your hope on the bedrock of God's love, which you can experience personally through the ministry of the Holy Spirit poured into your heart, which you can see objectively demonstrated through the cross. What are you facing right now? What kind of threats, little or big, are coming at you? What kind of fears, what kind of worries? Whatever it is, God's love is the only hope, the only hope that cannot be threatened, that cannot be taken away. Your job, your spouse, your children, your health, your life, none of those are guaranteed. All of those can be lost. But the love of God cannot be lost. It is the only secure choice as a foundation for hope. And a few chapters later, Paul will say this in one of our favorite passages in Romans 8. Where he says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And he lists all sorts of things. Persecution, famine, danger, some of the worst things we could think of. Can it separate us? No. Evil, spiritual evil, human evil, can it separate us? No. And then he goes for the big one. Death. Death cannot separate us from the love of God. It is the only secure foundation for our hope. Let's pray.